0: Take your word of God and turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 15. We will continue our study this morning, our worship as we remember the Exodus of Israel from Egypt. Continue teaching through that as Pastor Josh has already begun doing and led us to do the past few months and weeks. And uh, we'll continue to do that in his absence I do want to thank Micah and our worship team for how they conduct our worship services each week. I hope you're as grateful for them as I am and appreciate them the way that I do. Uh, not just for how they perform and the excellence with which they, they do what they do, but also for what they perform and why they perform it. And I uh, ho- hope you guys realize that that is, the, that is a treasure for a church to have. They, they, every one of them, from Emily uh, to Forrest to Micah to Jennifer to Holly... Uh, to to uh, Marcus when he was here and Linda when she's up here and Michaela when she's up here Uh, when they do what they do up here they're doing it as a matter of personal worship and not an act of performance and so that's a that's a fantastic thing I hope you've seen the newsletter this week if you haven't I encourage you to get it and look at it Micah wrote a a piece in there about what worship is and uh, I just want to read a couple of sentences that okay brother if I read a couple of sentences here and and uh, let's listen to this. This, this gives you a, a, an idea of the heart of your worship, Pastor. Worship is a rhythm of revelation and response. This means that God reveals himself to us and we respond in adoration and obedience. On Sunday mornings, we all gather from different circumstances and locations. Many of us feel distracted or even beaten down by the world. As we scurry around in our preoccupations, we need something to stop us in our tracks and remind us why we came. And certainly that is exactly what I feel like we do under his leadership, under Pastor Josh's leadership, uh, from the, the, the singing of our songs to the reading of Scripture, to the praying of prayers to the taking of the offering. Everything that is done here is done for a purpose. And so uh, hopefully you'll be able to see that and, and you'll be able to see what Micah wrote uh, in the text that we're looking at this morning, particularly the rhythm of revelation and response of Israel immediately following uh, their episode at the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 15 um, gives us a unique passage to study this morning. I've I've entitled my, my lesson this morning, Worthy of Worship. And it's easy to see why Moses and the children of Israel would be ready to worship, where they would be primed to offer their very best to God at this particular instance. They've just completed their passage through the Red Sea. They've just watched the destruction of the Egyptian army. We studied that last week and... When Josh was preaching from Exodus chapter 14, I want you to understand that the entirety of today's passage, what we're going to be studying verses one through twenty one in Exodus 15 is a song. And uh, as I was looking earlier this week, various commentators have tried to label this particular song. Some some commentators have called this a natal song, N-A-T-A-L, meaning uh, this is Israel's birth song. This is whenever uh, they are beginning a new epoch. In their in their own history and their redemptive history, other commentators have called it an emancipation song, and, and you guys know what that is. That's that's a setting free, an ability to have the freedom uh, to to uh, from the oppression and the tyranny of Egypt. Uh, another commentator called it Israel's first national anthem, meaning not necessarily uh, a nod to their nationality uh, so much as it is uh, because they were seeking the freedom to live as God's chosen people. The freedom to live the life of the promise that God had given to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. Uh, just a couple of, of, of notes about this song before we get into it. Just more technical things, if you will. Uh, this song was likely written and delivered and led by Moses. It said in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, that Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song, giving the indication that Moses probably led it, but I would say that he probably also wrote it. And if Moses wrote this song, it was one of... At least three songs in recorded scripture that Moses wrote, Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, Psalm, the 90th Psalm, Psalm 90 was another instance of Moses writing a song and it being recorded in Holy Scripture. And if you look now, those other two songs that Moses wrote are very similar to the one that is written here in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, this song has three stanzas, if you will. Three different refrains. The first stanza, uh, which is verses 1 through the beginning of verse 13, deals with God's ability to rescue. The second stanza, which begins with the second part of verse 13 and goes through the first part of verse 16, deals with God's ability to protect. And then the third stanza, the third, the third verse, if you will, of this Song of Moses, goes from verse 16 to verse 18, and it deals with God's ability to establish we're going to look at, a little at each one of those a little bit closer as we go. Uh, th- there are two perspectives or two themes that I want you to pay attention for when we read the passage in just a minute. They, they, they stand out. They won't be hard to see. Uh, the first theme is, is a retrospective remembrance of what God has done. Israel, in this song, led by Moses, is remembering what they have just seen. And, and what exactly that means for them, you'll see here in a minute that the setting is they're standing on the seashore. They've just passed through the Red Sea. The walls of water have just crashed down on the Egyptian armies. And they're looking forward at what's in front of them, at what they had just seen. And they are remembering what God had done. The second thing to look at and be watching for is a theme of, of prospective prediction. It's anticipatory. It's looking ahead. Of how God will complete what he started. The exodus wasn't the end. The exodus Exodus from Egypt was not the end for Israel. There was still more to come. And we're going to see that throughout the rest of this book as we study it. But the rest of this song, the second part of this song, the end of this song, is a prediction of how God is going to fulfill those covenantal promises. Those covenantal promises, by the way, that's key to understanding the whole book of Exodus is to understand the promise that God made to Abraham. And the promises that he made in the covenant that he made with his people. As you might imagine, God is the central figure of this worship. He's the point of of attention looking into this. And listen to me, church, if you listen to me say amen. You're gonna have to get a little louder because we're fewer in numbers today. There you go. Today's church culture has a problem with this. And I want to talk about that a little bit. We tend to have a problem with keeping God as the central point. Of our worship. We're, we're often busy looking for methods and reasons to worship that put God in a, in a secondary place or in the co pilot seat, if you will. And so we're trying to, to put God over to the side and, and make other things the center of our worship. But this here, Exodus chapter 15, is meant to be a holy song. It's meant to, to be a song that honors God and exalts His name. And speaking of His name, you'll see often in Exodus chapter 15, your Bible will have it as the Lord, and L-O-R-D will be in all caps. Uh, that, that's referencing the, the covenantal, the relational name of God with His people, Yahweh, that we've talked about before. Yahweh, the name of God that, that is I Am, or the one who is always Yahweh. It's mentioned over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. It's the name that Israel uses to refer to that personal relationship that they have with God. And this song of worship is, is for God. One commentator said this psalm is to God, of God, and for God. And that, that there's a key thing for us To realize today when we think about our own worship and the way that we worship the same God, our our Heavenly Father. If you will, go ahead and stand with me this morning. I know we don't do this all the time, but if you will, stand with me as we reverence God's Holy Word in reading today. And as you stand and look to Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, there's two things I want to ask you to look for. I want you to look for specifically the high emphasis that's placed on the person and the work of God. There's a high emphasis On who God is and what God's done. Second thing I want you to listen to me. I want you to look for this. And I want you to remember this throughout the whole sermon this morning. Is this statement. True worship is not a method. It's a reflection. True worship is not a method. It is not a style. True worship is a reflection. Keep that in mind as we read together beginning in Exodus chapter 15 verse 1. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to Yahweh and said, I will sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will extol him. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chafed. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard and they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembled. Tremble, grips them, and the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Yahweh, until the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Yahweh shall reign forever and ever for the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea and Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. And Miriam answered them, sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted, the horse and his rider. He is hurled into the sea. So the things that Moses led the congregation to sing, the women repeated in unison with them, with dancing in worship. Let us pray. Father, I pray that your word would be exalted above all of our thoughts and distractions today. I pray that you will be uh, highly esteemed in, in the things that we discuss today, Lord. I pray that you will guide us to know what your word is saying and how we can apply it to our lives. So that you and you alone will be glorified today. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are four points that I want us to get this morning. We'll move through these as quickly as possible. Four points in each one dwelling with worship as a reflection of the person and work of God. Very critical that you see that. Worship as a reflection of Of the person and the work of God. First thing I want you to see this morning is that worship is impulsive. Worship is impulsive. Look back, if you will, to the timing of Moses' worship. And in order to see this, you need to go back to the very end of Exodus chapter 14. We'll look back at verse 30. You'll see that there's no break. Between the breaks there there are for our benefit. There's no break or no discernible break between the end of chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15. Let's read them together. Thus, Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh. And they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Then Moses... And the sons of Israel sang this song to Yahweh. Notice, if you will, that there were probably shouts of celebration. This had just happened. This is one of the stories that we tell the children in children's church. And, and we make sure that they understand that to illustrate the great power of God, right? And, and how God's purposes are fulfilled. And he'll do whatever he needs to do or has to do sovereignly to get that to happen. And, and the waters rose up in a heap and the people of Israel passed through on dry ground, right? And then as they, they mount up the other side of the Red Sea and, and they become settled there, we see where God causes the chariots of, of, of Egypt to be confused so that they would not catch up with the Israelites. And then as they, they cross over, God causes the heaps of water to just come crashing down and cascading down on the Egyptian army, effectively ending this epic, effectively ending this episode in Israel's history. And I'm sure there was unbridled joy. And I'm sure there was shouts of, of celebration and, and dancing and singing. And, and, and I'm sure there, there may have been an interlude here where they, they, they got themselves together and they concentrated. But they came back together and they, they corporately sang this song of worship. But what I want us to see today, I want you to see the sequence of what happened leading up to this worship. OK, look closely at the sequence, what happened in verse thirty one. Number one, they saw Yahweh's power. They saw the great power of God. They were standing on the seashore and they turned around and they literally watched. While they were watching, the waters came down on those who were chasing them. The the waters crushed their oppressors. Everything that they had gone through in slavery and in tyranny to Pharaoh and the Egyptians ended like that at the great hand of a mighty God. They saw it with their own eyes. They were there and they experienced it. Secondly, in verse 31 of chapter 14, it said that they feared Yahweh. They didn't just see, but then they feared Yahweh. I can just imagine them standing on the seashore. It says that they're right there. It says that they haven't left yet. And I would imagine that you can tell by the language of Exodus chapter 15, they can probably see dead bodies. In the water. They may see chariots washing up on the shore. They may see helmets and swords and shields in the water. There's evidence of God's great power. And as they see that, the children of Israel, the children of Abraham, the the, the ones who are oppressed, fear Yahweh. Because this power is too awesome and it's too great. And the fear causes them to tremble at His great majesty and exactly who He is was. And then not only did they see and not only did they fear, but it says in verse 31 that the people feared the Lord and they believed in Yahweh, meaning that they were overwhelmed with the reality of what they saw. They were overwhelmed to the extent that they said this great God This covenantal God, this Yahweh of ours, is great enough to do anything. We're going to fear Him and we're going to believe. said, not only did they believe Him, they believed in Moses as well. Their fear, their faith was steadfast and they were sure. They never had more faith than they had right there. Then, after seeing, after fearing, after believing, what's the response of the people of Israel? Verse Chapter 15, verse 1. Then. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, that's the appropriate response to God. That's the appropriate response of us seeing the hand of God, the work of God. That's the appropriate response to us fearing the hand in the work of God and also in believing on it. This isn't a theme that stands alone in Scripture. Turn with me, if you will, keep your your finger in Exodus chapter 15. But flip over, if you will, to the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, chapter eight. And just to set the context while you're turning to Nehemiah eight, this again is a people of Israel. Again, they are coming out from under captivity. They had been in captivity to Babylon for around 70 years. They've been released from their captivity. They're on their way to, uh, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to rebuild uh, their nationality, if you will. And as they do that, they, 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 they call upon Ezra to read the law. And listen to what it says. See the comparison between Exodus 15 and Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And all the people gather as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they ask Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses... Which Yahweh had given to Israel. And then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in the front of the water gate. Listen to this. From early morning until midday. What if I were to go on four hours today? Read it from early morning until midway. In the presence of men and women and those who can understand. And all the people were attentive To the book of the law. Verses 4 and 5 describe some of the people who were standing at the podium with Ezra as he reads this. And then it says in verse 5, it says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And then Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and they worshipped Yahweh. Then, as in an exodus, they had seen the hand of God in their life. They had seen the work of God. They feared God. They believed in God. Now, the response of that was to worship God. Look back at the end of chapter 14. Do you see the gospel? Do you see the parallels of the gospel at the end of chapter 14? What happens to you and I when we're born again? What happens to you and I whenever we surrender the right to our life? And give our lives to Christ. Think about your own salvation experience. If indeed you're here this morning and you have been saved. If you know for a fact that you're a Christ follower. Think back to when you were saved. The story of the gospel is recognizing what God has done in your life. God loves you. He created you. He formed you. But sin separated you from fellowship with God. God sent Jesus Christ to die for you. He sent Jesus Christ to become, as it were, a curse that hung on a tree. The propitiation for our sin. And it's through Christ's atoning work on the cross at Calvary that we can even have a relationship with Him. Were it not for Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross, we would have no hope, church. We would have no hope of being in a relationship with a holy God. So we see the power of God. Every time a minister of the gospel stands up with this book and shares the gospel, you are reminded. You see and you hear what God has done. And the greatness of God. And His works on your behalf. I don't know about you. But I remember whenever I, at age 27, realized that I had made a, a, an inaccurate, uninformed decision to follow Christ. To, quote unquote, ask God into my life. And really didn't know what that meant when I was young. But when I did. When I understood that I stood condemned before God. That the righteous judge was going to, in fact, judge me because of my sin. I had not been washed clean. And when I understood that, guess what I did? I feared. I feared my standing before Him. I feared what would happen to me if I were to pass from this life into the next without knowing Him, without having a relationship with Him. My response to that fear, driven and led by the Holy Spirit of God, was to believe upon Him. To call out to Him. To repent of my sins and to turn to Him. Amen? To initiate a relationship with Him. Not that I initiated, but that He initiated it with me and allowed me to be a part of it. And now to be called a child of God. Oh, church, how could I not break forth an impulsive worship thinking about that? Even standing here, I wrote this out. But even just reading it back to you and thinking through that makes me want to sing and shout. And break out impulsively. The people of Israel were like that. They had seen God work. They feared Him. They believed in Him. And now the natural response of that is to worship Him. The lost sheep was found. The one who is in darkness now has been brought into light. Your sins are forgiven. And like the Israelites, you should see the work of God on your behalf and not be able to do anything but worship. You want to know what Josh is doing down here on Sunday mornings when he raises his hand? Impulsive worship. Impulsive worship. He's thinking about God and he's worshiped impulsively. You want to know what that person is thinking whenever they shout, Amen, to the teaching and for God's word. It's impulsive worship. They're thinking about the things of God and 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 the things that have been revealed to them about the person and work of God, and they want to shout for joy at that. Don't think about these ladies up here when they're singing and, and they lift their hands in worship, or Josh when he's clapping down here. That's impulsive worship. It's joy. It's the same type of unbridled joy that the Israelites saw when they were looking at what God had done to the Egyptians on their behalf to fulfill his covenant in their life. The response was joy and worship. My question to you is when was the last time you experienced that? Or have you ever? Thinking about what you were saved from and what you were saved to. When's the last time you just broke forth in worship? It doesn't have to be a song. It might just be contemplative or, or reading scripture and thinking about the things of God or prayer. I've told this story before. I don't know if I've told it here, but most of you know that I'm a freelance sports writer. I used to be a freelance sports writer. I covered University of Tennessee, which is in East Tennessee and those of you who are familiar with Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge know how beautiful that East Tennessee is anytime, but particularly in the fall, whenever the leaves are changing. And I remember going to ball games up there on Saturdays and, and sometimes I would roll my windows down because it was getting cooler and the leaves were turning. And man, I'd be sitting there surrounded by God's glory. And My wife's going to get on to me because she's like, you should have been watching the road. But I'm looking at the, the, the splendor of God's glory and I'm thinking, I get to enjoy this. Praise God, my Creator is so unique. I experienced an impulsive worship this week. We put my little girl on a plane to go to Ecuador. And her mom and I have been praying ever since before. She was even a thought that God would bless our children with a heart for Him. A heart to serve Him. And by God's grace, He allowed her the opportunity to go with our team to Ecuador. And we put her on the plane this week. And I went back and I got in the car. And. Started driving out of the airport, man, and I was just rushed and I even tweeted about it. It's like exhilaration. It's like a surge went through me. It said, praise God for answered prayer. My little girl, it's special to me and she's special to God, but there's nothing special about her that would set her apart for that. But the fact that God led her to do it. We didn't ask her to do it. She wanted to go as it was for so many of our team. And there was an exhilaration there that led me to an impulsive worship. Jennifer and I will be going tomorrow to Florida. God has given us an opportunity to get away to celebrate our 20th anniversary. So we'll be in Florida for a couple of days. And I've done this several times when I'm at the beach. You ever look out over the expansive waters and you think, is that not a testimony to the vast greatness of God? And you think, you read back even in the creation account of how God created the expanse of the waters and then He said, the seashore is going to stop right there. Who determines that? The great and mighty God. And so I have stood, and may do it again this week, on the seashore looking out at the waters thinking, wow! Are you kidding? How awesome is that? Our great God. Church, when is the last time that you look at the work of God and you look at the person of God. And you, God leads you, not into a season of emotion, but in a season of recognizing Him and praising Him and showering adoration upon Him. That's what the nation of Israel did here. It was impulsive worship at what God had done. Because see, like them and like us, when we see, when we fear, when we believe, our response should be worshipped. Amen? The second aspect of worship as a reflection of the person and work of God. Number one, worship is impulsive. Number two, worship is imperial. Worship is imperial. We say, Pastor Troy, what do you mean by imperial? Well, I had to look it up in the dictionary. So the word imperial literally means recognizing the rule or the authority of a sovereign state over its dependencies. So what does that have to do with worship? Well... If you think about it, whether we like to admit it or not, God is over all of us. Amen. God is in control of every single aspect of his creation. That'd be you and me, just like it was the Israelites, just like it was the Egyptians. None of this is an accident. God planned for everything. And remember that when Israel sang this song. This was a personal, they were singing it to a personal, reverent God. They weren't singing it to a faraway entity. They weren't singing it to a fable. They weren't singing it to to anything like that. They were singing it to the Yahweh, the one that they called the Great I Am. And so when they were singing it to Him, the phrases that they were using recognized that they understood who He was. Look at some of the verses in this passage. We're going to jump around for some of these to... Just look at the imperial nature of God that shows up in Exodus chapter fifteen, verse one says that He is highly exalted, that recognizes His position of prominence. Verse three says that Yahweh is a warrior. Listen, they had just witnessed with their own eyes Him winning a battle over the people of the army of Egypt. Verse six, it said twice it repeats this twice in verse six, and again in verse twelve talks about the right hand of God, and the right hand is symbolic of, of power. And of strength. And so, talking about the right hand is recognizing God's power and strength. Verse 7 says, the greatness of your excellence. That's a compound. It recognizes not just God's greatness, not just God's excellence, but the, the, the greatness of His excellence. Verse 11 says, who is like you? The psalmist, the, the Israelites cried out, who is like you, Yahweh. Repeats it twice in verse eleven. In verse twelve, he calls at the end of verse eleven he calls him majestic, which will point points out to Yahweh's kingship and his authority. He refers to the right hand again in verse twelve, and then skipping down to verse eighteen, it says, Yahweh shall reign forever and ever. The people of Israel were recognizing his permanence, his his last his ability to last and continue. Israel's worship wasn't like lifting someone up on their shoulders. You guys have seen these victory things where, you know, the team wins and they put somebody up on their shoulders. It wasn't the same kind of of recognition as putting a medal around somebody's neck or giving someone a trophy. They were recognizing just who God was. And listen to me, two specific things they were recognizing. They were recognizing God's two big words here. God's transcendence, which is God's power over all things, and God's eminence. Which is God's power in all things. Because God is not just powerful in all things. Like everything you control on there. God is the master of all of it. He's over every bit of it. His transcendence and His eminence. If you listen to me, say amen. I told somebody this morning I might sing. I probably won't. I got to thinking about, okay, what song? Imperial worship. Thinking about. The worship of God being highly exalted. And I got to say, what's one of our songs? I didn't have to think long, because really, Micah, within the first 30 seconds, I thought of, of how great thou art. When you think about the transcendence and the eminence of God, listen to these verses. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. When we sing that song, we are singing a song of worship that's related to God's transcendence. He is over it all. This great God that's almost indescribable does these indescribable things. He is over all of it. But not only is he over it, but he also inserts himself into this world and deals with and is in control of everything in the world. That's his eminence. Look at verse three of how great thou art. And when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on my on that cross, my burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. That's God recognizing the need for his creation to have a savior, to be saved of its sin and sending Christ into the world. To become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And in that, God is showing His eminence. And so when we sing How Great Thou Art, we're singing worship that recognizes His transcendence and His eminence. And then my sing then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. That song, How Great Thou Art, is worship that recognizes God as being imperial. We heard it this morning and I appreciate this so much, brother, that you lead me and my family to worship this way every week in the way that Micah chooses songs, in the way that he selects songs with the very first song we song. Oh, worship the king. Listen to the words of that song. You alone are the matchless king to you alone. Be all majesty. What are we doing when we're singing that song? We're recognizing God as being Imperial. Church, I hope you see this morning the difference between imperial worship and every other kind of worship. Because there's a danger there that the church would do well to embrace. Worship should be a reflection of God's person and his work. And that should be separated from our emotions or our circumstances. Now, listen to me. If you listen to say amen. Sometimes when I worship, I get emotional. Sometimes when I worship, I'll throw my hand up or I'll clap my hands. And I, I, God will, God will, through the remembrance of Him, I will become emotional. But listen to me, my emotion is not the basis of my worship. The basis of my worship is a reflection of what God has done and who God is. And part of who God is is God is high and exalted. He is imperial, and so therefore, my worship of Him should not bring Him down here. My worship of God should keep Him up here. That's why I can't stand songs that don't do that. The world can do that. Anybody can write a song that doesn't recognize the imperial nature of God. Jesus, take the wheel, for instance. The license plates that say, God is my co-pilot. Those take away from the imperial nature of God how highly exalted he is. And brothers and sisters, our worship needs to keep him here because he is here. We don't need to try to bring him down here with us. And our worship should reflect that in every single way. But instead, our current culture wants to treat God like He's a friend. Or we want to treat God like He's a lover. Or we want to treat God like we're singing love songs to Him. Our worship should be imperial. Hey, listen to me. If you can substitute the name of your spouse, your husband, your wife, or your kid into a so-called worship song, and it not change the nature of that song... Can I tell you something? It's not a worship song. If I can be singing what sounds like a love song and I can throw Jennifer's name in there to it and it not change the nature of that song entirely and I can interchange Jennifer's names with God's name, then it's not it's not celebrating the imperial worship of God. We need to be careful in how we listen to and how we receive these things. And I am so thankful, church, and so should you ought to be for Josh and for Micah who continually point us. To the imperial nature of Christ. Why? Because He is transcendent. And He is imminent And He is worthy of that type of worship. And if you believe in that, say Amen with me this morning. So worship as a reflection of the person and work of God. Number one, it's impulsive. Number two, it's imperial. And number three, it's intentional. When we reflect on the person and work of God... And we worship, then it should be an intentional worship. Our recognition of God shouldn't be generic because I don't know about you, but his work in my life and his work in your life, there ain't nothing generic about it. Amen. He specifically chose and reached out and saved me in my circumstances. Matthew Henry, Bible commentator, pointed out Israel's song was intended not only to express and excite Israel's thankfulness for the present, but to preserve and perpetuate the remembrance of His work to future generations. In other words, as they sang this song of worship, they didn't mean this just to be for them. They wanted it to to be pervasive to the other generations that were coming behind them. And that was very, very, very prevalent to to the people of Israel. They always wanted to do that. And there were plenty of reasons for them to worship God intentionally. And if you read this this passage in Exodus 15, you'll see those specific reasons. Look with me, if you will, at the end of verse 1. Specific reasons, intentional reasons why Israel worshipped God on on the seashore. Verse 1 says, the horse and its rider, he has hurled into the sea. Obviously, that's talking about the Egyptians. Verse 2, look at the use, by the way, in verse 2 of the personal pronoun, my. Indicating the personal relationship. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God, referring to Abraham and his covenantal promises, my father's God, and I will extol him. They're being intentional about the words that they use in worship and the things that they say in worship. Verses four and five intentionally point to Pharaoh's chariots and armies and officers that they say went down into the depths like a stone. Verses seven and eight talk about God's burning anger. And how the blast of your nostrils caused the waters to pile up like a heap. I I, I enjoyed looking at how Moses and the people, the words that they used and sort of the illustrations that they used, the imagery that they used to describe what God had done, right? Burning anger, depths like a stone, pile up like a heap. Verse 10 says, you blew with your wind and they sank like lead. Verse 12 says, you stretched your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Verse 19 was a summary statement. Let me read that in its entirely It's a summary statement of all the things that God had intentionally done for Israel. It says, For the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. It's easy to see how they looked specifically at what God had done. And their worship specifically and intentionally uh, 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 was in line with what God had done. And so should yours and mine. I was looking at a Bible commentary this week. I think it's called a Bible, the Bible Illustrator. And it had six ways, six ways that Israel was thankful for what God had done. If you're listening to me, say amen. Six things that Israel could be specifically thankful for and intentionally worship God for. Number one, Yahweh had saved them from terrible danger. Yahweh had saved them from terrible danger. Look at Exodus 15, verse 9. Speaking to the Egyptians, it said, The Egyptians said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword and I will, by my hand, I will destroy them. So, God didn't, God saved them. That was uh, Egypt's intention, but God saved them. Number two, Yahweh saved them from inevitable danger, not just terrible danger from the enemy, but also also from inevitable danger. If you look back at chapter 14, there was a point whenever they were at the seashore and the sea was here and the Egyptians were there. And what did the people of Israel do? Doubt it. Moses, why have you brought us out here to die? We could have stayed in Egypt and continued to serve. Why bring us out to suffer death here? They were looking at the inevitability of their situation. Ocean or sea. uh, Egyptians. God saved them from that perilous situation. Number three. The people of Israel were delivered by the most glorious of miracles. Can you imagine a a greater miracle than what they got to see? I always thought that would be pretty cool. I always thought that would be awesome to be standing there and watch Moses stick his staff out over the waters and the waters just park. If there was a miracle in the Bible, I had to say that would be one of my top five probably. I just think that would be amazing to be able to see that. They were saved by the most glorious of miracles. Number four. They were delivered notwithstanding their sins. Pointing back to Exodus 14 when they sinned by doubting. They were saved in spite of their sins. Number five. They were delivered all together. Not even one perished. Meaning, the Bible said not even one of them. They all walked across on dry land. They all got to the other side. And then the waters collapsed on the people of Egypt. God saved every one of them. Number six. They were delivered with assurances for their future. We're going to get to verses 13 through 18 here in just a minute. Where it talks about the anticipo- anticipatory aspect of worship. They were saved with assurances For their future. Now, if you listen to me, say amen. I know I'm going on a little bit here. We've got just a few minutes. I want you to ask you to hang with me just a few minutes. Those six things. Very intentional. Very intentional ways that God delivered Israel. You can take those six things, friends, and look at the way that God has delivered you. And you can find worship there, too. Follow with me, if you will. Number one, God saved Israel from terrible danger. God saved you from terrible danger as well. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is certain death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have been saved from terrible danger. Number two, God saved Israel from inevitable danger. First John chapter 3 Verse 7 and 8 says, The one who practices righteousness is righteous. But the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God has appeared for this purpose. To destroy the works of the devil. Friends, I'll point out to you that apart from Christ, you are an enemy of God. And this verse right here. 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 says, The Son of God appeared for this very purpose. To destroy the works of the devil. Your demise apart from God, is inevitable. But with God and through God and through the work of Christ on the cross, you have been rescued from your inevitable destruction. Number three, God delivered Israel by the most glorious of miracles. The only thing that might trump that would be one man coming to the earth to bear upon the cross the weight of sin for all of us, to become sin for all of us. So that we could become children of God earlier in first John chapter three, it says, see how great a love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, only children of God. If we come through the way of the cross, number four, God delivered Israel, notwithstanding their sins. Romans chapter five, verse eight says God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So they were delivered, notwithstanding their sins. You and I are delivered, notwithstanding our sins, if we have had our sins forgiven through Christ. Number five, God delivered Israel altogether and not even one perished. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Just as not a single one of the Israelites perished on that day when God performed that great miracle. If you're here today and you have been born again and you have surrendered your life to Christ, not a single one of you will perish the eternal damnation and death that comes. But every one of you will be protected from being snatched and will never perish. Number six, God delivered Israel with assurances for their future. We'll talk about that in a minute. Their future secure because God had made a covenant with Abraham. Likewise, if you are here today and you are a Christ follower, friend, your future is secure. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse three, if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am there you may be also. I went back over those for your benefit. I wanted you to see the intentional way that God saved Israel. And listen to me, if you're saved today today. There was an intentional way that God saved you too. And that ought to be a basis for your worship. There ought not be one person in this room who knows Christ as their Lord and Savior and, and God is their Heavenly Father and have a relationship with Him. There should not be one person in this room that can, can think upon God and worship Him without getting specific and intentional. When you reflect upon what God has done in your life and who God is, your worship ought to be intentional him, It ought to be majestic. I debated whether or not to say this. I put it in my notes. I'm going to go ahead and say it. It is something that I don't understand. Um, get your toes out. I'm getting ready to stomp on them probably. Maybe some people. I don't understand. When you look at what God has done and who God is. Marcus, I don't understand this. How, when we think about that and we worship, how can we not worship God at all? I grew up in a small Baptist church in southern Middle Tennessee. My wife and my mother-in-law are familiar with the church. A lot of wonderful people in that church. Can I tell you, I used to look around Micah on Sunday morning. And I could count, there were between 100 and 125 people in that church. I could look around on a Sunday morning and count on one hand the number of men who were singing. And I could probably count with even fewer fingers how many were singing purposely. And you two could probably name them at the church. After Deliverance Church, there should be a song. Worship is an imperative duty. It's commanded of those who have surrendered their life to God, who God has rescued I happen to believe that those folks standing on the seashore looking at the the littered bodies and and chariots and things right there. And they feared God and they believed upon God. I happen to believe that there was a song that was welling up within them. And there was absolutely zero way that they could not join their voices in chorus and sing worship to God and be intentional about that. God has saved you intentionally and your worship for him, brothers and sisters, needs to be intentional and it needs to be powerful and it needs to be purposeful. It needs to be a song of victory. You need to sing it loudly. You need to sing it impulsively. You need to sing it with a glad heart. My goodness, when I was studying this the other day, I was uh, I I was looking at this on Friday. It was Monday night, I believe. And I, I was—I had a baseball game on in the background, and the Detroit Tigers were playing the Oakland A's, and and the uh, Detroit Tigers in the bottom of the ninth inning got the bases loaded, and some young guy hit the ball out of the ballpark, grand slam home run, walk off home run. As soon as he hit it, he knew it. He threw the bat. And he's running around the bases, you know, he's, he's doing all this and high-fiving people. And it's a wonder he'd even hit the bases. I figured he was fixing to miss a base. He was so excited. And when he touches home plate, you know how it is. Uh, he hits home plate and he comes and he jumps on home plate. And everybody starts patting him on the head. And I think that's going to give the guy a concussion. You know, they're sitting there hitting him on the head. And they're, they're celebrating and they're bouncing up and down. And guess what they do? They start singing. Here are the Detroit Tigers. The guy hits a home run. It's a grand slam. The bases are cleared. The scoreboard shows that the Tigers win. And they start jumping up and down and singing a song. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ shows up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And we sit in the pews with our hands in our pockets and our arms folded. And we act like we don't even recognize what God has done on our behalf, church. It ought to break our heart. It ought to break our heart. If we've seen His work in our life, and we have feared Him. And we believe on Him. There was a time my wife will attest, I didn't even sing in church. And then whenever God saved me, I didn't have a choice but to sing in church. And it's not about showing off. And it's not about performing. It's all about what Israel did right here. It's about recognizing who God is and what He's done. And the natural outpouring of our heart ought to be worshipped. Baseball teams do it. The church doesn't do it. I don't understand that. We still have a lot to learn about worship. I still have a lot to learn about worship. But one thing I've seen from this is that worship is not a reflection of your emotions. And worship is not a reflection of your circumstances. Worship should be a reflection of your correct recognition of God and what He has done and is doing in your life. And then you ought to sing it. With unbridled joy. God is worthy of our worship church. That worship should be impulsive. It should be imperial. It should be intentional. And fourth and finally, our worship should be anticipatory. I had to ask if that was even a word. So forgive me if it's not. I may have just made one up. Anticipatory. Meaning we should, when we worship, we should be looking ahead to something. In verses 1 through 12, the beginning of verse 13, Israel's looking back. They're standing on the seashore and they're seeing what God has done and they're worshiping based upon what God has done. But there's another side to that coin. And that's the second and third stanzas of this song that they wrote. Verses 13 through 18 is them looking forward to what's still to come, to what God has laid out before them and for what God has in store for them. They're worshiping something that hadn't even happened yet. Matthew Henry says, so confident is this psalmist of the happy issue of salvation, which was so gloriously begun that he looks upon it as if it's, in effect, already finished. He's looking ahead as if it's already finished. What he's saying is this. The basis for Israel's anticipation is the victory that's already been won. Church, the basis for your anticipation of what lies ahead for you as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, The basis for your anticipation is already what's happened. It's called the cross of Jesus. Where he died for your sins and made it possible for you to have a relationship with God. Think about the the circumstances of the people of Israel. Now, bear with me, I've, I've spent the whole time assuming that this is the seashore, so I'll do it one more time. They're they're standing looking at the seashore. They're looking at the littered bodies and the equipment and those kind of things. And they're standing here doing that. But momentarily, what's Israel going to do? Israel's going to turn around and face their future. Israel's going to turn around. And what are they going to see when they turn around? They're going to see desert. They're going to see wilderness. They're going to see wandering. They're going to see little supply, few supplies. They're going to see little food. They're going to see that they have a long way to go. And in spite of all those things, listen to me, in spite of all those things, they worshipped. Because they had a promise. Two quick things about Israel's anticipatory anticipatory worship and I'll be done. Number one, Israel's anticipatory worship recognizes God's ability to protect. God's ability to protect. Look with me, if you will, at Exodus chapter 15, verse 14. God's ability to predict. Verse 14 says, the peoples have heard and they tremble. The peoples have heard and they tremble. What that refers to are four nations that will come against Israel whenever they start going for and they start approaching the promised land or the land that was God, God was going to give them. Those were the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites and the Canaanites. And listen to what that scripture says in verses 14 through 16. Look at the response of those people as the Israelites approach. Verse 14 through 16 describes them as trembling, as anguished, as dismayed, as melted away. Verse 16 says that terror and dread has gripped them to the extent that they experience stone cold silence, they're paralyzed by fear. Why are they paralyzed by fear? Because God's moved. Joshua chapter 2, speaking of Rahab, we see where they know. God's, uh, the enemies of Israel know what's coming. They, they know about what happened at the Red Sea. Now, whenever the, the people of Israel are worshipping right here, they did not know. But it was such a sure thing. The future was such a sure thing. God was so going to demoralize the enemies of Israel that they could sing about it on the, on the, on the shore of the Red Sea. And this makes Israel's worship song predictatory, in that these nations, they didn't even know that the Egyptian army had been wiped out yet, but it was already a sure thing that God was going to fulfill his coming- all promises. Number two thing about Israel's anticipatory, anticipatory worship — man, that's a hard word to say. If I just made that up, I'm going to take it back. Israel's anticipatory worship recognizes God's ability to establish. So we've already seen where God is going to protect, where God is going to deliver. And now we're seeing at the end of these verses where God is going to establish. Just as this was a sure thing that God was going to give Israel protection over its enemies, it was also a sure thing that God was going to allow them to be established as their own people. Verse 16 talks about them passing over, which is their sojourn, their traveling, they're getting there. Verse 17 uses language of the Israelites being planted and obtaining their inheritance and having a dwelling and having a sanctuary. This is commemorating something that hasn't even happened yet. But you and I understand this, don't we? Because as children of God, as sojourners on this world who are looking forward to a future, an eternal future alongside our Savior, with our Savior in heaven, we know what it's like to sojourn here, but to look ahead And I would hope that you could join me today in being able to worship about that. Being able to look at the land that's ahead, the home that God has prepared for us, and be able to sing with joy and with anticipation about that. That's what the nation of Israel was doing here. It was a part of their worship. That type of worship has the ability to celebrate God for who He is, for what He's done, and for what He's promised. Brothers and sisters, you and I ought to be able to do the same thing. We ought to be able to look ahead at God. Don't get caught up on worship style. Don't get caught up on types of worship. Don't get caught up on things like that. Don't get caught up on, on things like what instruments do we use or do we not use. What we need to be caught up on is who God is. And what's He done? And how should my worship reflect that information? right there. What does your worship look like today? When you showed up today, what did you come ready to do? Sometimes whenever folks are gone and the crowd is a little lower, we have the, we have the uh, you know, we sort of, come, oh, it's going to be a little, you know, it's not going to be quite the same. Twenty-three people are gone. and It's not going to be quite the same. Every single time you come into corporate worship, you ought to be able to worship individually. So my question to you is, how did you come ready to worship today? Did you come ready to worship impulsively? Meaning at the reading of God's Word and the singing of praises to God, all of a sudden the Spirit begins to moon your life and you begin to think, did you come ready to worship? You don't have to raise your hands or clap your hands or say amen or anything like that. But in your heart, did you come ready to worship impulsively? When you walk out of here, if God were to show you something, would you be ready to worship impulsively today? Is your worship imperial? God's not your friend. God's not, God's not your, uh, your best buddy. God's not Jacob, Holland. He's the king of the ages. Israel recognized him as one who is highly exalted. And we should think that way when we're singing praises to him, when we're worshiping. Listen, I talk a lot about singing. Even when we pray. Even when we think and meditate. We should have a high view of God, an imperial view of God. Your worship should be intentional. If you're saved today, today, I'm guaranteeing you God's done something very intentional in your life. And so your worship of Him ought to be intentional back. And number four, does your worship look ahead? Is it anticipatory? Does it anticipate what God has already promised you? What Christ has already done for you? Friends, the victory has already been won. We ought to sing about it. That's our triumph song. Just like every time, whenever we come to the invitation... I'm, I'm, we speak to two types of people. We speak to those who have been born again. Those who are assured that they have a relationship with Christ. Those who have forsaken their own will and their own way and, and allowed Jesus, the work of Christ on the cross, to, to be the, the, the center of their life and the defining point of their life. And you are a Christ follower and have that relationship with Him. My question to you today would be, does your worship reflect what's happened in your life? Israel's did. Israels did. They made sure of it on the banks of the Red Sea. And there may be others here today. You don't have a reason to worship. You don't have a reason to worship. You can try. You can sing songs. But you don't have that intentional reason to worship because nothing intentional has happened in your life. And my invitation to you today is that you would forsake all, repent of your sins, and turn to Him. If you do... I can tell you something. The triumph song is sweet. I look forward to singing it with you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray that You do Your work in and among here with these folks today. God, however the response needs to be, public or private, uh, confession of faith, that's surrendering their life to You, church membership, whatever it is, Lord, Your will be done. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.